Hi, I'm Mary C. Curtis, and this is Equal Time. This May, Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month has special significance. It's a celebration of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, a diverse and growing group, and their contributions to every facet of culture and society. The first vice president of Asian American descent, Kamala Harris, is just one of many history-making pioneers. But with the COVID-19 pandemic came a resurgence of discrimination and violence against Asian Americans, spurred by racist and xenophobic rhetoric about the origins of the virus. Civil rights groups, corporations, and businesses quickly responded with action and activism, all a part of the Stop AAPI Hate Coalition. The challenge is far from over, as Asian Americans have long fought a label of outsider. But this community also has a history of meeting and overcoming obstacles on the way to success. To celebrate the month and its deeper resonance in 2022, and to look to the future, Equal Time has invited two guests with vision and experience. Anne Lee Benedict currently serves as Chief Legal Officer, Chief Administrative Officer, and secretary at Thomas James Holmes. Anne serves as chair of the NGEN Advisory Board to the Board of Directors of MCCA, a national organization dedicated to advancing diversity, inclusion, and equity in the legal profession. Dr. Joanne L. Rondilia is an assistant professor in sociology and interdisciplinary studies and Asian American studies at San Jose State University. Currently, she is a Public Voices Fellow at the Op-Ed Project. An award-winning educator, Joanne is the co-author of Is Lighter Better? Skin Tone Discrimination Among Asian Americans and co-editor of Red and Yellow, Black and Brown, Decentering Whiteness in Mixed Race Studies. Her research interests include colorism, popular culture, and media representation. So we'd like to welcome Anne Lee Benedict and Dr. Joanne Rondilia to Equal Time. Thank you both for joining us on the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah. Well, yes, we of course are here. We're talking about uh, Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month and how it has a special significance uh, because it is a celebration and because this diverse and growing group you know, has been the topic and the subject of a certain amount of discrimination and some violence uh, in this country. So we wanted to talk a little bit about history, about the past and the present, and about the future, actually, and what can be done. So I wonder if you can both give our listeners uh, some historical context on the presence of Asian Americans in this country, as well as some of the obstacles many have had to overcome. And many of the things and the progress that has been made. So maybe you could start, Joanne. Sure. Thank you so much again uh, for having me here. So in terms of Asian American and Pacific Islander history, gosh, where to start? Um, Just very briefly, the first Asians to actually come to the United States or to be on what is now the United States happened in, uh, I believe, 1582. And oh my gosh, if I get that that year wrong, I'm very sorry to all the Filipinos out there. But you see the first settlement in Morro Bay in 1582. This actually predates the pilgrims. And um, you have these early settlers uh, who came to 
a place like Morro Bay because they jumped ship because of the Manila galleon trade. The, and it's a trade that went from Manila to basically what's now California and parts of Mexico. So we've been here for a very long time. But when you're looking at um, the first large immigrant Asian group to come over and settle in the United States, that would be the Chinese. And that would be in San Francisco because of the gold rush. So there is this very long, uh, very long standing history of Asians in the United States, even though today in 2022, oftentimes, Asians are seen as the perpetual foreigner. When we're looking at Pacific Islanders, the history is a little bit different because what we're seeing is American imperialism and American colonization that starts in the Pacific. So, for example, Hawaii, where the United States basically stole, um, you know, stole the land there. You have places like the island that I was born in on Guam, where you have the acquisition of uh, places like Guam and the Philippines um, because of the Spanish-American War. So if there was a way for me to actually encompass, you know, the United States relationship to the Asia-Pacific region, unfortunately, that relationship is really grounded in war and imperialism. Because without war and imperialism, you would not see uh, this robust community here in the United States. That's so interesting. I think many people really don't know that. And I like your point about many people think of the perpetual outsider where it couldn't be <laughs> further from the truth. Um, Anne, I wonder if you would like to weigh in and talk a little bit about uh, how you've come to think of the history and and live it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. You know, and, and as Joanne mentioned, I think a lot of a lot of folks here in the States really do not have appreciation and insight into the long history of Asians in the United States. Um, just to add on just a little bit of color, I think, um, to what's already been discussed is I am, uh, my family is from Korea. I am a Korean American. I was the first person in my family born here in the States. And, uh, I'll date myself. In 1972, uh, my parents, you know, came to the states. You know, really among on the tail end of a um, of the kind of the major, uh, you know, immigration from Korea to to the United States. Um, but you know, pretty recently, a few years ago, it was discovered that the first Korean community in the United States um, was actually established in 1908. In Riverside in California. Um, so there's a far longer history um, here in the United States than I think, you know, um, people are generally aware of. That's so interesting as well. I like the diversity of backgrounds here. So uh, Joanne, can you talk a little bit more about your coursework at uh, San Jose State and how it connects to challenges facing uh, Asian Americans in 2022. And, and you said to me that 2022 is a particularly appropriate time to reflect on this history. Yes, absolutely. So um, I teach in Asian American Studies at San Jose State University, and I teach the GE courses in Asian American Studies. So starting this school year across the California State University system, all students who are enrolled, have to graduate, having taken at least one ethnic studies course. And so Asian American studies is one of those, um, you know, one of the choices. 
And when we're looking at 2022, you know, this is definitely a landmark year. Of course, it was the first, the the one-year anniversary of the Atlanta spa shootings. Next month, we have the 40th anniversary of the murder of Vincent Chin. Um, for people who don't know who Vincent Chin is, he was murdered almost 40 years ago. This was in Detroit, Michigan. Him and his friends were attending his uh, bachelor party, and he was brutally beaten um, with a baseball bat by someone named Ronald Evans. And, you know, this case galvanized the Asian American community. So if you look at a lot of national organizations and you look at how they were started, they were started because of this murder. So, but just to be clear, violence against Asian uh, Asians in the United States is nothing new. That violence had started, you know, as early as the United States coming onto our respective homelands. But it also was very present, you know, for example, when uh, the Chinese immigrated here during uh, the gold rush. The other um, notable case to look at is the the murder of Yoshihiro Hattori. He was a Japanese exchange student um, who unfortunately was murdered when him and his host, his host brother, were going to a Halloween party and they knocked on the wrong door. And the person behind the door basically took one shot and was able to get away with it using a stand your ground law. And this occurred in, I believe it's Louisiana. Yoshihiro Hattori's parents to this day still um, help to organize. It, they, they help people in the United States to organize stricter gun laws because, you know, after losing their son, this has been, you know, it's something that they have been engaged with. So there's something very specific about 2022. And so in the classroom, I try to make sure that my students are very mindful of issues such as violence against Asian Americans, but I, I want them to understand it not just as a contemporary phenomenon, but something that goes hand in hand with um, our immigration here. Thank you. Now, Anne, you are involved very much so with the national organization, which is dedicated to advancing diversity, inclusion, and equity in the legal profession. And so could you talk a little bit more about that? What kind of programs that you have uh, put in place and, and what is going on in that area? Yeah, absolutely. So the organization you reference is MCCA, the Minority Corporate Council Association, and we are the longest standing diversity um, focused organization um, in, in the legal profession here in, in the United States. And we're really dedicated to promoting the next generation of legal leaders to be as diverse as the world you know we live in. Um, that's really the mission of the organization. And you know, this organization has been working tirelessly to educate, support, to advocate, to increase awareness, create programs, you know, create trainings so that we can support underrepresented communities in this critical profession. And those pipeline programs were really kind of soup to nuts. And what I really love about MCCA, and I'm involved in a variety of organizations in the legal space, you know, some are, I 
NAPABA, which is the, you know, National Asian American Bar Association, um, more specifically, you know, women's organizations. Um, MCCA is really an umbrella that broadly represents, you know, our goal for diversity in all in all respects. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I dedicate a fair amount of my um, energy <laughs> over to MCCA. And, you know, as we have been experiencing the events of the last, you know, couple of years would have, you know, really highlighted, um, you know, the inequities in this country, um, being, you know, being lawyers and being in a position to be able to advocate. And also to, for many who are in positions of higher visibility and having platforms, um, you know, it's really a, a wonderful group of folks who are, who are willing to use those voices and who have, you know, who feel the responsibility to do so. And I think, um, also really there to try to help everyone who can, you know, feel empowered to exercise their voice as well. Thank you. Uh, you know, I really like that you brought up the, uh, the concept of voice and using voice, because I want to ask both of your takes on if you think the country, including ma- many Asian Americans, had become a little complacent before COVID, before the controversies over its origin shown a spotlight on Asian Americans and before uh, some of the recent incidents, as we've seen, uh, violence directed toward Asian American businesses and communities. Uh, Why don't you uh, take a stab at that, Joanne? So when it comes to voice and, and, you know, especially articulating your active voice for the Asian and Pacific Islander community, I think there is this assumption that we've often been quiet or we've been complacent. But the question I always pose, especially to my students, is, you know, is it that we've been quiet or complacent or is it that people just aren't listening? Because when you look at the history, especially of Asian and Pacific Islander activism in the United States, you have this very rich, robust history of activism. For example, um, I believe it was just yesterday, it was Yuri Kochiyama's birthday. And for those who don't know who Yuri Kochiyama was, she was this incredible, um, you know, this incredible activist. She, She was a civil rights activist, was very much about solidarity between Asians and African Americans. Um, Most people know her because she had a very close relationship with Malcolm X. So for example, when he was assassinated, there's that famous picture, I think it was in Life magazine, and you see this Asian woman holding his head, um, you know, when, when he was assassinated. And so oftentimes stories like Yuri Kochiyama, this These are not rare occurrences of Asians being um, active. It's actually quite the norm. When we look at a place like Hawaii, you know, in the early 1900s, what Hawaii offers us is uh, an early look at inter-ethnic racial solidarity, especially between Japanese and Filipino plantation workers who worked together to ensure um, labor rights for uh, plantation workers. You know, today you have a lot of Asians and Pacific Islanders participating in uh, movements such as um, Black Lives Matters movement. You have a very robust presence of Pacific Islanders, uh, especially when we're looking at um, 
environmental justice issues. Uh, Pacific Islanders, I actually believe, like many other indigenous groups, really are at the forefront of environmental justice, um, social activism. But oftentimes, you know, I think the, the problem really lies in when in popular media or in the popular psyche, when you think of a social justice um, advocate, an Asian or a Pacific Islander is not the person that you're thinking about. But just because we're not the people you're thinking about does not mean we have not had a robust presence in ensuring um, you know, civil rights legislation in fighting for equity in this country. Yeah, little stereotypes within stereotypes. Um, you know, and we've seen companies now a little creeping out to take stands on issues of the day, sometimes facing pushback and uh, sometimes being, uh, you know, encouraged by their own employees. When you are working in the legal sphere, in the corporate sphere, how do you feel about companies taking a more visible stand when it comes to justice issues in general and the Stop AAPI hate movement in particular? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, another thing that we have seen and you know, some of this, I think, is the events in the world coinciding with you know, governance and, and social purpose um, energy, you know, just among companies. Um, and so, it, you know, we've had the pandemic and the events with George Floyd and other events that have occurred. Um, and so there's been, I think, a real heightened awareness around um, around social purpose and social justice. And you, you see keep companies making statements, not making statements, we interpret those. I think, you know, there is more and more of an expectation that com companies communicate in a way that reflects who they are. Um, today, consumers in particular are, you know, very interested in, uh, you know, supporting companies that, you know, kind of represent the values that they have. Um, and that's something that um, I think is not going to go away. Um, and it's something that I think is a very powerful force as these you know different things come together. Um, I think that the most important thing though is to be genuine as 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 a company and who it is you know the company is and what the company's purpose is and where it makes sense to really you know express those core values and their support. Um, but you see it everywhere, and I mean, I do it. I'm sure you 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 both do it. You you know, you say I'm going to support this company because I think this company embodies the values that you know matter to me. And companies are doing it in lots of different ways. For example. I don't know if either of you have seen um, this ad that you know, Pro you know, Procter and Gamble has been in the news a fair amount about you know their their voice, um, but they have an ad this month called the name, um, which is focused on the name of a, uh, a baby born here in the states. Um, she was given a Korean name, um, and the whole the whole ad relates to that you know that experience and support. And then if you go on their website. They actually have more content, and they have you know learning content, and it's pretty amazing um, that you know a you know a consumer goods company is able to really you know bring this much energy and so much thought and really make it available uh, you know to the community at large um, you know and so there are I think different ways that companies you know can really express their support and you know really um, focus on um, you know awareness. 
the other day I happened to be on Google and there was, you know, there was something on their homepage about a woman named Stacy Park Milburn. This was not somebody that I was familiar with and I learned about her. She was a Korean American activist, um, you know, disability activist. And, and that's something too that, you know, they don't have to put things like that on their on their homepage, but they do, and you know, and and they're able to educate people um, and really, you know, bring that, you know, that diversity and inclusion uh, very naturally into you know uh, what they do. So I thought that was great. No, that is it's we're always learning. Um, I want to delve into a little bit about your d- the different areas of expertise because you're both doing such interesting work. So, Joanna, I know uh, your coursework at San Jose State connects to challenges facing Asian Americans, but also much of your published work addresses discrimination and divisions within and among Asian. Americans who are definitely not a monolith. Can you tell a little bit more? And also, if you see more unity as the Asian Americans have come basically under the spotlight more, particularly sometimes for reasons that of being under attack. Yeah, so a little bit about my own research. Uh, I research colorism, and for people who don't know what colorism is, it's skin tone discrimination that often occurs within the same racial or ethnic group. So for example, um, you know, hardline examples of colorism would be in American pop culture, people will say something like, I'm not a racist. I think Beyonce is very beautiful, but you're not going to say the same thing about, you know, a, a black woman who's much darker, say like Gabrielle Sidibe, right? So, um, you know, among Filipinos, colorism comes in the form of, you know, a lighter skinned Filipino discriminating against a darker skinned Filipino. Among Asian Americans, it would be, say, a light skinned Chinese person discriminating against a darker skinned um, Cambodian. And so colorism in and of itself is a very intricate and complex system. And one of the things that I argue in my research is that colorism is ultimately an extension of racism. Right. Colorism is how communities maintain anti-Indigenous and anti-Black racism by basically putting a value on particular uh, bodies, on particular physical features within our own community. And by normalizing those notions, it almost makes it so that anti-Black and anti-Indigenous racism becomes very natural, becomes very normalized. And so I I really wanted to um, interrogate that, especially among the Filipino community. Um, And it's largely, and a lot of my own research and how I got started was, you know, I'm Filipino. I was born and raised on Guam. You know, uh, me, my brother and sister were all born and raised on Guam. And you know, we grew up with these messages about don't stay out in the sun too much, don't get too dark. And then when we moved to California, I noticed that a lot of peers, whether they be uh, Latinx, whether they be uh, Black, we all sort of have the same experience of being told not to be dark, right? And so um, I thought it was an interesting thing to really look at, especially with respect to the Filipino community. Um you know, on one hand, I do see more unity. Um, in particular, I see a lot of interest, especially among, you know, sort of American-born Filipinos, American-born um, Asian-Americans who 
really want to have this conversation with our parents or with our elders about racism in the United States. And I think a lot of that comes from, you know, being raised in homes and communities where anti-Black racism or anti-Indigenous racism is, is normalized. And so I think that there's this generation of Asian Americans who are really trying to to have these heart and soul conversations with our elders, but we also understand the fine line between wanting more from our elders, but not wanting to cross that line of disrespect, right? I see a lot more people who are trying to educate themselves. I see um, in my own classroom, I see a lot of just genuine interest in wanting to know more. And I think that this is really a reflection of how inadequate the K through 12 education system is, especially with respect to ethnic studies, especially with representing the stories and experiences and histories of of people from different communities. And then sort of on the opposite, you do have certain people, certain parts of the community who will double down on their racism, right? And so, and I think what's interesting to see that sort of that small part of the Asian American and Pacific Islander community, when those people sort of double down, it makes everyone else try to sort of push harder on making sure that we are educated, right? Or that we are having the necessary conversations that need to be had in order to understand the historical and political moment that we're in. Well, thank you. Um, I know, Anne, you have such a history in the area of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and you've been working with corporations. I'd like to find a little bit about how you are building on some of the programs that you've had in place to meet the moment that we're in right now, and also how the companies are working, if they are in any way, with legislators and community leaders. Yeah. So, you know, I think meeting the moment... um, it is quite a moment. And I think that, you know, while, and, and it's, I think this kind of goes back to your question about, you know, have people been complacent and, you know, woken up or, you know, is this part of, you know, sort of more like just kind of an episodic situation. And I think, and I agree with Joanne, I don't know that folks were necessarily complacent. Racism has existed in this country. Um, it hasn't gone away. But I do think that um, a lot of us, had probably felt that things had improved more dramatically, at least like, for example, in my lifetime, right, I'll be turning 50 this year. And it has been pretty shocking, I think, in the last couple of years with with the pandemic and, you know, the blame that's been placed on the Asian community to really have our eyes open to, to how much work there still needs, you know, needs to be. Um, That being said, I think that um, people have been galvanized. And there's also, frankly, most of us have lived, you know, all of our lives dealing with microaggressions, um, you know, in our day to day lives. This is the first time, at least in my experience, right, where I have really felt like I had to worry about my physical safety if I if I left my home, I had to worry about, you know, my parents' physical safety, um, you know, if they were leaving their homes. And that is a very different place to be, I think. So I don't know if I, you know, I don't know if I would say complacent before, but I would say definitely, you know, much more attuned 
now. And I think within organizations and in and, and corporations, and I know in mine and, and in those that you know, many of my friends and colleagues serve, we've been able to have frank conversations about the issues that, you know, that our communities are facing. We have been able to have a voice. There are many folks who speak speak on these topics, you know, among our profession and among um, our organizations. Again, um, you know, I think we're, you know, part of why we share is to humanize the experience for folks, to help people really see that this is not something you just see in the news um, or that's something that, you know, right, nobody I know, you know, ever experiences these kinds of things because we live in, you know, this, you know, wonderful bubble. Um, that's, you know, that's really not the case. I mean, I'm not sure that I know anybody who hasn't been directly affected in the last um, two years in one way or another. I mean, my father was, you know, at a golf course um, here in Denver where we live in the spring of 2020 and somebody walked over to him and, um, you know, had something to say. My father's lived in this country for, you know, almost 60 years. <laughs> um, but, you know, because of the way he looks, you know, somebody thought it was okay to just come over um, and direct racist remarks towards him. And that's just not acceptable, um, much less, you know, the folks who have experienced, you know, violence um, and murder. I'm so sorry to hear that. But I guess my point is that we all, we do share, I think, you know, and, and people have, become much less reticent, I think, about sharing. And I think that's a really, really important and critical thing. Again, like I said, because, you know, to overcome these, um, these issues, you know, we really do need to humanize these experiences. That's how I, I, I feel. Joanne, I'd love to hear your, your thoughts. Yes. No, I definitely agree. I think that it's important for us to, especially in the Asian and Pacific Islander community, to really articulate um, these experiences. Um, I don't want it to be that we're only <laughs> articulating um, instances of, of violence and tragedy, but I also think that we're often not seen as a community that experiences this. And so this is why those stories and you know, those articulations become very important. Um, and so, yeah, I absolutely agree. For example, I really love the the work that Stop AAPIHate.org is doing, you know, because you now have this hardline, like, record of, of you know, of tracking instances of, of violence, right, against the community. But I think the other thing to remember about that, um, you know, that organization is it's all self-reporting. And so I wonder for every for every incident that is reported, I often have to wonder how many are not reported. Right. Because oftentimes and I see this especially among um, the immigrant community, you know, the, that first generation that immigrated where, for example, my own parents would never really talk about violence that was directed towards them because for them, violence is the tax that you pay. It's the price that you pay, you know, for being able to come to this country, you know, so that often gets silenced. And when we silence these stories, we lose the context of our existence, you know. So, for example, this was in the early 2000s, I was taking 
I decided to, uh, I was obviously very young in my 20s. <laughs> I decided to take um, self-defense classes. And I thought for sure my mother would be upset because she just didn't like the idea of her daughters doing sort of like, you know, violent kind of athletic things like self-defense or, you know, I, I took Krav Maga. And then when I told my mom, she said, oh, you're just doing what your dad used to do. And I said, wait, what? And I would later find out that my dad took martial arts as a form of survival, um, you know, when he was on Guam, because at the time that he and other Filipino immigrants, you know, were living on the island, there was a lot of hate directed towards Filipinos, because the idea was that these new immigrants are taking up all of these really uh, lucrative, high-paying government jobs. But there was no context in terms of People like my father were actively recruited in the Philippines to help rebuild post-World War II Guam, right? And so they often had to, you know, pay that that tax of violence. And so my dad and his co-workers a few nights a week would gather and I think they studied Aikido, the art of throwing. And this was something that I had no idea that my dad participated in, but it really was a, a survival tactic, something that we never really talked about as a family, because it's this natural, this seemingly natural thing to understand that violence against us is really the, the tax that we pay for being here. And we're often told, well, if we think it's bad here, we should be thankful that it just looks like this here in the United States, because it would be worse in the Philippines. But at no point does anyone say, you shouldn't be attacked at all, right? So I think, you know, I, I think that there's something to be said there. I love that our wonderful guests are talking with each other. So I encourage <laughs> that. I encourage that very much so. We're getting a lot of the human stories. I, I would uh, want to know from both of you, too, about looking forward. Um, we're in this moment. What steps need to be taken uh, to strengthen the movement and to take this moment and learn some things so we can make some progress toward a goal of equity, be it, you know, corporate, academic, working with the community, working with legislators, uh, working with each other. So what does the future look like and how do we get there? What do you think, Anne? Oh my goodness. I think it's all of those things. Um, Take one at a time. uh, (laughs) No, it really is. I mean, like I said, you know, while, the last couple of years have been very difficult in so many ways. I guess I tend to try to, I tend to look at the, the bright side. And really that is that what we have is, is a so much more conscious focus on, on equity and inclusion. The legislation that's been passed to, you know, to require um, you know, Asian, you know, Asian American um, history in schools in some states is is a step. Again, we start with education and awareness and support, and it's all of these pillars, right, that you have to bring together to reach. I think you know, what a lot of us have as a goal, right, which is you know, which is a place where you know folks are not targeted, right, and judged you know, much less, you know, physically targeted and judged, um, you know, on the basis of their color, of, of, of how we look. And, you know, while the events that have gotten us here are, you know, horrible and unfortunate, and we continue to have incidents that occur, you know, across the country, unfortunately, what you're really seeing, I think, is folks really saying, you know, this isn't, people are much more, I think, focused and introspective about 
you know, about these events that are going on and what, what can I do, right? What can each of us do, um, you know, to do our part to, you know, to really help make this world fully equitable and inclusive. Um, and that is something, you know, that I think is, it's not, it doesn't sit on one group's shoulders. It doesn't, you know, sort of, you know, sit with one area, as you noted, right? It's it's this multi-pronged effort, but I'm really hopeful that, um, you know, these are not the kinds of things that, you know, our children will be talking about, um, you know, when they're our age <laughs> as, we, as, as we go, as we go forward. How about you, Joanne? What does the future look like and how do we get there? I'm a little bit more pessimistic than Anne. <laughs> but, um, I mean, I did but, say hope. <laughs> yeah, no, no. And definitely, like, I mean, I, I do remain hopeful, right? But I do think that there are a couple of things that need to be addressed. One, there needs to be some major structural changes. And so, you know, I think that for the Asian American and Pacific Islander community, um, there needs to be more representation in media, government, and education. And this is a tall order in and of itself, you know, to try and transform these major institutions, media, government, education. But what that looks like on the ground or on the personal level is that in terms of media, what this means is more storytelling, more creative expression. So for, you know, the Asian parents who want their kids to go into STEM, I want you to know that your kids can also go into art and writing and acting and storytelling. I know it's not ideal, you know, and it's not the most stable, but you know, in order for us to fill, you know, to really thrive and survive in the future, you know, these, you know, media representation is incredibly important. Um, in terms of government, this, you know, this looks as simple as voting, running for office, and, you know, um, civic engagement, right? We all come from communities, we all want our communities to, to improve. And, you know, I think that, seeing ourselves and being active participants in civic engagement, you know, like th this is important. And then finally, in education, of course, it's about um, having more diverse history books, uh, more diversity in terms of curricula, but it's also more research. And when I say research, I'm really looking at, and I think this is really important, especially for those of us who are in ethnic studies, is to approach our research using these intersectional lenses, Right. And, and we do this both. I think it's important for us to, to do this both in the classroom, but also in our approaches. So, for example, the research that I do, I would not have been able to even think about looking at colorism without um, looking at the way in which, you know, so many black scholars before me, you know, understood this particular topic. In the classroom, when we're talking about lynching, I cannot talk about Chinese lynching without talking about African-American lynching. I think that we really have to look at our lives in these intersectional ways, because what happens is I often, you know, when students come into my classroom, they often feel like they're the only ones who are experiencing whatever they're experiencing. And it's like, no, like experience feels very personal, but it's also a product of a collective, um, you know, like a collective experience that we have with other with other people of color. And so I think that, you know, in the classroom as educators, this is what we have to start doing is looking at our stories and our respective histories in these 
intersectional ways. Yeah, I, I love all of that, especially the, the intersectionality piece. And I think um, absolutely could not agree more, particularly as as relates to representation in, you know, in government, right, and civic engagement, and we are seeing, and and this is not to say we have not had, um, you know, trailblazer, you know, Asian representation in in government, um, but really getting to a critical mass of representation across all levels of government, I think completely with you is is really really critical and you know and i think you've highlighted three really important areas and visible areas and i think you know more broadly right what we're really talking about is representation at critical mass across you know all the different ways right and we want to see you know we want to see ourselves represented and we want it not to be a novelty or unusual, but really, you know, just ingrained into, um, you know, the fabric of every part of the country. Mm. And Anne, you've seen this play out in the corporate world, uh, the issue of representation. Um, how's it going there? <laughs> <laughs> um, again, a lot of progress still to be made. Uh, absolutely. But again, I think that this is where we really are you know, talking about, and, and this is something, you know, on, on the on the legal profession, you know, we've been very focused on um, for, you know, for, for many, many years, certainly my entire career. And, you know, has the progress been, you know, disappointingly slow, you know, relatively? Yeah, absolutely. It should not be, you know, a surprise to see a woman or a person of color in, you know, in a, you know, a seat in, in the C-suite or on boards. And, the efforts that have been, you know, that that are ongoing, I'm I'm sure many, you know, many folks, I'm included, you know, we find frustratingly slow, but there's really no option, right? Um, we can't give up. Um, we really need to keep pushing until, you know, there's enough momentum where, um, like I said, you know, I am hopeful that someday this is not what has to be a goal, but it's just, you know, it's just a given. But we're definitely we're definitely not there yet. <laughs> I'm in between all of you, the optimist, pessimist. But I, you know, this week is not a great one for optimism. But um, uh, <laughs> I always ask my uh, guests this, which is, of course, I can't ask everything. So I ask, what question is it that I should have asked that I didn't? But it's important to you, and you have some things to say on the matter. So I'd like to get from both of you, what did I leave out? But what needs to be said and heard? I'll go really quickly. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know that there's anything you, you should have asked that you didn't, but I think, you know, one thing that it's kind of like, you know, what can one person do, right? What can, what can I do? What can, you know, um, and I think everybody can do something, right? And so, you know, to me, you know, for every person, there are so many people out there, and, and we talked about this when we were prepping, um, you know, kind of going back to, you know, having a voice and, and especially, you know, Joanne, you mentioned, you know, folks who are, who are maybe not feeling in a position uh, empowered to speak because of their status or because of the language barriers. And what are we seeing out there now? We're seeing folks who are in those positions, prominent public figures out there really advocating for, you know, folks and giving folks a voice. We have actors and, you know, and, and, and high profile, you know, individuals who are out there. And that's incredible, right? And I think that, you know, what everybody can take from that is that you can, you can do your part, right? You know, and, and to really, to think about, you know, who it is, 
that you admire, right? Who's out there, you know, saying something, doing something, and how can you translate that into, you know, something that, you know, each of us can do and have an impact and also recognize that there's somebody else watching who's going to see that um, and be inspired to do that too. How about you, Joanne? Yeah, I agree with everything that you said, Anne, because I think that we often don't articulate, you know, like, I think young people are in the space of, I don't know if I can be it unless I see it. And so I think that that is really important. But, you know, in honor of Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, I think the one thing that I, I would like people to, I guess, reflect on is the PI part of AAPI Heritage Month, because it's 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 a component that often gets lost and is actually not always acknowledged even in the Asian Americans, you know, the Asian American space. So, and this is why disaggregated data becomes important. But really, you know, um, when we're looking at AAPI Heritage Month, I, I want people to reflect on who are Pacific Islanders in the United States and what is that history there? Because there is this very fine line between Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. And it's and part of that is the way in which I think borders become crossed, right? Asian Americans, by and large, we immigrated here for reasons including labor. Um, some of us came as refugees, et cetera. But Pacific Islanders, it's really because of U.S. imperialism and um, militarization. And as I said earlier, you know, when we're looking at environmental justice, which is such a huge, um, it's such a huge issue these days, we really need to look at what um, Pacific Islanders and other indigenous peoples have been doing in this regard, because comparatively, I think every other community group is pretty new in the environmental, um, you know, in, in the environmental racism, environmental justice space, when Pacific Islanders, you know, have always been in that space, because for generations, they've seen the way that militarization and imperialism has really decimated our respective homelands. And so again, like when we think and reflect on this month, you know, I urge people who are listening to really reflect on the PI part as well in AAPI Heritage Month. So any other thing I've valued your time, I've kept you both. I've so learned so much in this conversation. Thank you for joining Equal Time, uh, for sharing your insights, your work, and your hopes and blueprint for the future and a more equitable world and what part that we all need to play. So thank you for joining me on Equal Time and giving our listeners quite the lesson uh, in Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you so much. So what's keeping me up at night? I think of the insights and the history shared in today's show, and I worry that in the 24-hour news cycle that tumbles from crisis to crisis, important issues of inclusion and equity will get lost. That goes double as tumultuous midterm elections approach. But I trust that Equal Time listeners will keep this show honest. So tweet me your concerns and your ideas of topics we should cover. What questions do you have? especially about issues of policy and politics seen through a lens of social justice. I'm at MCurtisNC3. And thank you for listening to Equal Time. 
please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.